Hello, my rebels, and I hope you're having a good Christmas time. Hopefully, you're having a chance to take a break from a busy year, or maybe you're still on staycation and have been for many months. Either way, it's a pleasure to have you listen to the podcast. Uh, over the days ahead, we have the best of The Rebel, compilations of some of our favorite videos this past year. I hope you enjoy them. We'll be back with original programming very early in the new year, but I think a lot of these videos you're about to hear today in the next few days um, may well be new to you because they were on our YouTube channel, but they were not on my show, The Ezra LeVant Show. So I hope you enjoy these because I think most of them may be new for you and they're really some of our best work. So without further ado, here are the best of the Rebels shows from 2020. And uh, just in closing, let me invite you to become a Rebel News Plus subscriber. You get the video version of these shows, which uh, the podcast is great, but seeing the visuals, especially in some of our most dramatic coverage, really makes a difference. Just go to rebelnews.com, click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. As you know, we don't take a dime from Trudeau. So this is how we, well, we rely on you, frankly. Okay, here's today's show. Tonight, the best of Rebel News is U.S. coverage. It's New Year's Day, and this is The Ezra LeVant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. You know, Rebel News has done so much work in Canada this year, partly because of the travel ban under the pandemic, partly because there was so much to talk about here at home with the lockdowns and the politics in our country. But we did pay attention, as did the entire world, to the election in the United States. We even sent reporters down to a Trump rally in the final days. We are one of the few voices in Canada that gave Donald Trump an even shake. Other than Conrad Black, well, I think I've just listed all of them. Rex Murphy, I'd put in that category too. But hating Trump is almost an entry requirement to join the media party. Well, we dissent as usual. Our motto is telling the other side of the story. So herewith is the best of Rebel News U.S. coverage. The Civil War was the greatest calamity to happen to the United States. Over 600,000 killed in that war more than all other wars combined for America. It ended slavery and it ended the secession of the southern states called the Confederacy, the most momentous crisis in American history. I truly think tomorrow's election and the stark contrast offered by Donald Trump and Joe Biden is the most serious choice with the most serious ramifications for America in 160 years. I really believe that. In fact, I think there's actually a possibility for an informal civil war in America, not a war between the states, but a wave of mass political violence in the streets. It's not even a prediction, it's an observation of how the Democrat street gangs like Antifa and Black Lives Matter have conducted themselves in the past six months. I see that shopkeepers in Washington, D.C. have begun boarding up their windows again. They're not worried about riots from Republicans. There are no Republicans in Washington. But don't worry, all the Democrat celebrities who support Democrat rioters call for the defunding of police, they'll have plenty of private security. 
America has had crises since the Civil War, whether to get involved in the Second World War, for example. Isolationists won the argument for two years after Hitler attacked the world. That ended when Germany's ally Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. It was a disaster and a calamity, but it actually unified America. After Pearl Harbor, every American was fused together in a sense of shared national purpose. The Cold War that followed was a test for America, too. But again, there was a general agreement between Republicans and Democrats about foreign policy. It was John F. Kennedy, the Democrat, who contained Cuba, actually backed an attempt to invade it. Democrats love fighting wars, probably a little bit too much. My point is that disagreements between Republican politicians and Democrat politicians and their voter bases have been reasonable and incremental most of the time, but that's come apart. Over the past two decades, divisions in America have increased. There isn't much of a center anymore. There's not a lot of common ground anymore. Look at these graphs from Pew Research. The country's coming apart, I think. Coming apart, that's the title of a book published almost 10 years ago by the great scholar Charles Murray. He describes many changes in America, including a growing white underclass and how elites in places like Manhattan and Silicon Valley have so little to do with small town or rural or Christian America anymore. It's like they're living in a bubble. PBS interviewed Murray, and they published a little quiz online that you can take, and I really recommend you do it. Do you live in a bubble, is their quiz. There exists a new upper class that's completely disconnected from the average white American and American culture at large, argues Charles Murray. Questions like, have you ever lived for at least a year in a community, an American community, with a population under 50,000 that is not part of a metropolitan area and is not where you went to college? So have you ever spent a year in a small town? Have you ever walked on a factory floor? That's my favorite by far. Have you ever had a close friend who was an evangelical Christian? And this one, which was so prescient for cancel culture, do you now have a close friend with whom you have strong and wide-ranging political disagreements? Huh. There are questions about what restaurants you go to and what movies you watch. Some of them are surprising for fancy big city pundits to read. They're not IQ tests. There's actually no right or wrong answer. It's not an ideological test. It's just testing. Do you know how people in the other places live, how the other half lives, how they think? It's not an IQ test. There's no right or wrong. It's just do you know. Trump has a massive rally. Well, he's having a bunch of them. He had one over the weekend in a place called Butler, Pennsylvania. Small town, lots of blue-collar workers working in fracking. Used to be some steel jobs there. It's over 90% white. Average income is $25,000 a year. You heard that right, Twenty-five. Look at the size of the Trump rally there in Butler. I've read some reports that put it over 50,000 people. Obviously, people came in from far away, probably Pittsburgh nearby. That's one part of America. The steel jobs went to China. Fracking is what gives them some work now. They're not obsessed with what your pronouns are or transgender rights. They're not interested in pleasing the United Nations global warming diplomats, and they're probably not interested in ever fighting a forever war in Afghanistan. So that's one half of the country that Charles Murray talks about. They know that open borders immigration drives down wages. They've been hit hard by opioid drugs from China. They, I think they care about China. I think Trump's message is like, this works. Here's a one-minute ad. I think this works. ABC News investigation this morning into Joe Biden's son, Hunter, and questions about money he made from foreign business dealings while his father was vice president. And did Joe Biden allow it? We're talking about millions of dollars in at least two countries. Did you talk about China no. or your deal with China? No. A 12-hour flight over? No, no, of course not. That never came up? No. Less than two weeks after that trip, 
BHR Partners was launched, a private equity firm funded in part by Chinese banks. He has come forward and said it was a mistake on his part to be on the board. My son's business dealings were not anything with everybody that he's talking about. What's your understanding of what your son was doing for an extraordinary amount of money? I don't know what he was doing. I know he was on the board. Hunter Biden holds an equity stake in a company that's taken over a billion and a half dollars in loans from the Chinese government. This is obviously an issue. What they said is China would prefer Joe Biden. China and Iran. China and Iran. China and Iran want to see Donald Trump's defeat. And they're looking for ways to make that happen. China's a great nation, and we should hope for the continued expansion. Growth of China is overwhelmingly in our interest. And there's much more to come. And now the steel mill ain't even there. I think that connects, which is why the mainstream media absolutely censored the massive scandal of Biden's son, Hunter Biden, taking millions from China and millions from Russia and other foreign countries, while Biden himself was vice president dealing with those same countries. Hunter Biden is a dissolute, drug-addicted ne'er-do-well, always in trouble, bizarre moral choices that I will not get into here, absolutely unemployable, but all of these foreign countries were hiring him for millions of dollars. What were they paying him for? Well, here's a hint. I remember going over convincing our team, our <coughs> others, to convincing us that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I went over, right, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev and... Uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had, they were walking out to the press conference and said, no, nah, I said, I'm not going to, we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. <laughs> I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> Got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid. Yeah, that's what Hunter Biden was hired for. You've heard the phrase honey trap, right? Basically a way to entrap someone, to compromise them, usually using sex, but you could extort someone over almost anything. Hunter Biden is the Winnie the Pooh when it comes to honey traps. I mean, seriously, why on earth would the wife of the former mayor of Moscow wire him $3.5 million? It's not even the corruption. It's that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, um, it's not the grift. It's not the immorality. It's not even the security risk. It's that Joe Biden would obviously sell out the people of Butler, Pennsylvania to China for a buck. They're not fighting for the people of Butler. I think it's true to say that Trump is belligerent and aggressive and bellicose and offensive and feisty, but I think it's in the service of people like those in Butler. I, I don't know how rich Trump is, whether he's worth a few hundred million or a billion or 10 billion, I don't know, whatever, but it's clear that he's not doing this for the cash. It's absolutely unthinkable that Joe Biden would decline to take the president's salary. Trump donates his salary to a different charity every quarter. What does Trump fight for? Why is he in it? He had fame and fortune and influence. Whether you agree with him or disagree with him, he's deploying his personal and political capital to certain very clear public outcomes. Tax cuts, reviving oil and gas for economic reasons and also to make America energy independent, not getting into foreign entanglements, checking the power of China militarily and politically and economically. I mean, all the masters of the universe, all the big bosses hate Trump for putting tariffs on China. Of course they do. They want to use cheap Chinese factories instead of hiring people in Butler, Pennsylvania. 
What's up, you guys? It's Andrew Says here in Traverse City, Michigan. We're here at the Trump rally. We're going to ask people what they're doing here, where they came from. Why not Joe Biden, you guys? Come on. Let's go. Guys, what's the number one issue for you guys in this election? I'm just sick and tired of being sick and tired, man. I'm just ready for change, as it has been for the last four years, and I'm excited for what's to come in the next four years through President Trump. What do you guys... Wait, wait, wait. Mine is freedom. 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 Yes, I'm dead serious. Yes, sir. So what's the number one issue that's important to you in this election? Um, the number one issue to me uh, is that our president is a man of strong moral conviction. Um, he is a man that stands up for the rights of the unborn. He is a man that stands up for um, uh, prayer in our schools. Um, he's just been a really morally strong guy. Um, and the people that he's surrounding himself with, Pence, Ben Carson, all the people, his cabinet, they're just also morally strong people. So it's important. And what's the biggest issue you're voting on this year? Second Amendment. And you feel like that's going to be taken away? I don't like where it sits with the other guy. Are you old enough to vote this year? No, I'm two years short. Okay, what's the biggest issue do you think that people should vote for Donald Trump for? Uh, probably so we don't have socialism in our country. I think socialism will destroy the United States and the free world. Can you guys tell me a policy or something Trump's done in the last four years that makes you guys support him? Uh, the China policy I like, uh, the trade agreement, the USMC trade agreement, a lot of different things. The wall being built. Everything he does. <laughs> I like everything he's done. There's not one thing I don't agree with. He has done more for this country than any president ever. He stood up for true Americans, created jobs, and made it so we could all be one. And what's the number one issue for you guys going into this election? Antifa fighting against people that don't love this country. 100%. I mean, employability for the different people, the black communities helped so much, all kinds of things that are just amazing. I don't know what more Trump can do. He's already done just about everything, you know, that he talked about. It's all about the country going forward. If I think if we had Biden in there, we'd be going backwards. One issue for me would be the economy. When the economy goes, that's kind of the way the election goes, most cases. I mean, I got, I got them all. The abortion thing. Uh, the tax thing, uh, I'm not, a, you know, I'm just a regular guy and, and I don't like, we already gave Biden how many years? He's been around for a million years and he's, I didn't like the eight years they were here. It was horrible. And then everything was fabulous until somebody bought the Wuhan and brought it over here. And that took care of that. That's what they're trying to use to get Trump with. It's not going to work. Keep making America great. Exactly. What's something you hope Trump can accomplish if he gets in for another four years? Uh, to make America great again. A lot of what my governor has done has harmed more people, and I've had to watch it for the last seven months, and it's infuriating. Can you go into more detail on that? Um, I don't really want to, but I actually was more of a moderate, and um, I can't support any candidate that doesn't follow the Constitution and refuse to work with other lawmakers. Like, I don't want to get told my business has to shut down or I can't go to the sauna at the gym or the steam room or the whirlpool. I 100% believe in freedom. You can, you can try to protect things, not me. Help our government back off so we can be free. I wanna be able to do what I wanna do. I just hope that the guy has an easier four years. He deserves it. He doesn't deserve what he's been getting. Um, yeah, I just, I, I hope he can just move forward and have, have um, 
an easier time than he's had to accomplish things for the American people. What's something we hope Trump can accomplish if he's given another four years? I would say the same thing he's exactly done already, right? The freedom, as my buddy's saying here, and continuously lead us in the way that any president should, or as he has said and as we has known, as any other president has done, he has done tremendously greater than any other president known in American history. Uh, I hope he gets rid of abortions in our country because if you look at it, it's a million deaths a year. That's basically a genocide. And I hope he brings the country together instead of further dividing us. Is there something you hope Trump can accomplish if he's reelected for another four years? Just keep on doing what you, you were doing before they brought the virus here. You're done. Keep going. <laughs> Why not Joe Biden? What's something about Joe Biden that you don't like or that makes you want to vote for Trump more so? Joe Biden is not able to lead this country. Not at all. And what's something that you can point to that Joe Biden stands for or maybe something he said that you don't like? I mean, is there anything he said that you do like? Come on. <laughs> There's not even any time to put in enough effort to talk about it. So Trump has been there for us since day one. Biden's been against us since day one. You put a real Democrat in there to run against, run against Trump, we'll talk. Is there something Joe Biden has said or done that makes you not want to support him? Destroy Everything. The <laughs> Destroy the oil industry. He doesn't even know who he's running against. <laughs> anything else? Is there anything good we can say that Joe Biden's done in his career? Joe Biden's probably a nice guy, but he's a little past his time. Is there anything positive we can say about Joe Biden, whether it's his policies or his history? No, because he never did nothing in the other 47 years. Why is this next four going to be any different? Anything that he stands for that you like? He's been married. Is there anything about Joe Biden we like or we can point to that he's done well? Not in my opinion. Uh, nothing in my opinion. No policies by Joe Biden you would support? Um, well, his, his life policies for sure. That's my number one issue. And um, his taxes. And there, I mean, there's a ton. There's a ton of issues that I won't support Joe Biden for. How do you feel about Joe Biden? Is there anything good he's done? Anything good he Joe, said? Joe who? Joe who? Joe who? Is there something that you don't like about Joe Biden? Is there anything we can say positive about him at all? If Trump wins, do you think there's going to be any violence or riots in the major cities? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're already dumping the bricks off in major cities to get ready for it. So, yeah. It's, yeah. In the Democratic-run cities, yeah. Why do you think the people are acting that way? Because they're sore losers, I guess. I don't know. They need to get out of the basement more. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I think there probably will be. I hope there isn't, but there already is. It already is. They're going to keep it up. Oh, yeah. Why do you think that's happening? Well, they, they can't beat us any other way. And they're a bunch of radicals doing all the messing around. They're just, that's how, they're, they let them do it. So, and they did it in the Democrat states that were in the cities. They won't come here and do it. Bring that shit here and let's see what happens. So many people think they're woke, but they're not. I think a lot of people out of backlash and bitterness will will riot, uh, which will be a sad, sad case for each and every American known to mankind. And do you think there's going to be violence if Trump wins in a bunch of the major cities? Yes. I feel like there definitely will be. I Just around here, there is not as much, but in the bigger cities, for sure. Why do you think people are doing that? I, I can't imagine. They don't know why they're doing it, so. Different beliefs. Yep. yep. Did you want to add something? Yeah, go Trump. Uh, Trump 2020, and here's to another four more years. Trump 2020. <laughs> uh, Trump 2020.
make America great again. Let's do it. Go Trump! Go Trump! Woo! That's it. Go Trump! We can't compete with the CBC uh, 1.5 billion taxpayers' dollars to go into bells and whistles, but you know what? It doesn't actually cost any money to tell the truth, which is what we do here. And joining us now via Skype is our friend Ben Weingarten. Ben, how are you doing tonight? Ezra, I'm well. How about you? I am great. I... My head is pessimistic. My heart is optimistic. My head is full of polls and um, images of voter fraud I see in Pennsylvania and the drumbeat of gaslighting. Oh, Trump has no chance. Everyone hates him. He's a racist. My head is pessimistic. My heart says, come on, come on. I think he can do it. Look at that. Look at those crowds in the rallies. I am on a knife's edge, Ben. I don't know how it's going to go. How are you feeling about tonight? Based upon some of the rhetoric that we've heard out of the Biden campaign, I think there's a real tell there in terms of his campaign manager saying, well, you know, we could lose Florida, we could lose Pennsylvania, we still have paths to 270. If I was the candidate, that's not what I would want to hear my campaign manager messaging early in the day on Election Day. But I really do think what this comes down to is if you're the president, it's not just about retaining the states that you had last time and fighting in some of those states where he won by a fraction, uh, by a very small margin, you have to beat the litigation and the fraud margin that exists this election. The margin of and lawyer, so, you're so right. And it makes me nervous. Justin, do we have a clip of that uh, Pennsylvania voting station that devolved into chaos? And what scares me is that Trump has these massive rallies for example, in Butler, Pennsylvania, I heard reports there were over 50,000 people that rally. That's an impressive number. But, you know, you have 50 Democrat uh, Party workers, Antifa Party workers, BLM Party workers, counting the votes in Philly, and it can neutralize them. Here, take a quick look at this video. You're not letting me in? Well, no. 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 It's not taking all the police. Do it. If you leave it, come back. I have a citywide watcher certificate. The man outside was a Republican scrutineer is the word we use here in Canada. I, I think there's a slightly different term in Pennsylvania. He was certified, authorized for the entire city, but you saw the Democrat uh, poll uh, keeper observer watchers keeping him out. Who knows what was going on in there that they didn't want him to see. You can have 50,000 Republicans voting in the Butler area, Ben, but if you have 50,000 frauds going on in that building there, you know, that'll neutralize them. That's what worries me. Yeah, it appears there's it, the only way I would describe it is sort of intimidation or rule breaking when it comes to poll watchers. And I've seen other video footage of this as well out today and some anecdotal evidence from folks on the ground in Pennsylvania as well. And it just so happens that you seem to have problems at precincts that just happen to be the Republican predominating in the per Republican predominant areas in many states, including Georgia as well. Uh, so, you know, it's it's overcoming all of these different forces at once. And the turnout has to be that strong. And there have to be enough Democrats that cross over 
All that we see at the macro level is data showing that Republican turnout is outpacing where it was last year, for example, in Florida, that Democrats sort of cannibalized their vote in the early voting. And so the, the real question is going to become, is the turnout of Republican voters and then crossovers and independents today enough to beat that pace that Democrats were on that's really fallen off today? And again, to this point about the litigation and fraud margin, I think if you're a Republican, you want to be in a place where, as this night progresses, Pennsylvania is not the state that this all hinges on. If it comes down to that one state in a contest of litigation and fraud, I put my money on Democrats, generally speaking. It doesn't mean Republicans won't fight like hell. It doesn't mean they can't win. But I think, first of all, it tells you something about who the Democrats are, that litigation and fraud is where they would dominate. Uh, but it, it's a situation that you don't want to be in. And so when I'm what I'm looking for in kind of the early going tonight is how will the president do in Georgia and North Carolina? If he's doing pretty well in Georgia and North Carolina, I think he'll probably take Arizona, too. I think he feels confident in Ohio. And then it becomes a contest of can you win one or several of Nevada as a smaller state, but then Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Can the president get one of those states? And it may well be that if he has a good night and retains essentially the South up into Virginia and Arizona and Ohio, then maybe it's a clean sweep in those states. We, we just don't know. Uh, but I really think it's on a knife's edge. You could have a split of those Rust Belt states or it could fall all one direction. I think ultimately it's a question of turnout and intensity in the Trump campaign has it and the question is will it be enough yeah i want to show one more video of ballots uh questionable conduct and you're right i've seen reports of uh heavily republican precincts in nevada and georgia have technical problems isn't that lucky i think we got one more clip from pennsylvania take a look at this You know, there's so many clips. I, I'm not even going to play more of them. I, that's not even the one I had in mind. There's so many little instance like, instances like this. And I don't know if that's 10 votes in question or 100 or, God forbid, 1,000. We'll see how the night goes. Ben, um, thanks for joining us. We're going to talk to you at least once an hour. I didn't properly introduce you. Um, I really like your book, American Ingrate. It is the definitive uh, investigative uh, book into Ilhan Omar. Just outstanding. But you have a, a wide and deep interest in American politics, including foreign policy. I think you're a scholar with the Claremont Institute. Am I right with that? Yes, a fellow at the Claremont Institute as well. I appreciate that. Give us a little bit of a bio. I didn't properly introduce you. I jumped right into talking about the night with you. Give us one minute for folks who haven't seen your interviews on my show before. I appreciate that again. I'm a columnist at Newsweek, which uh, may surprise some given my political orientation. 
the senior contributor at The Federalist and a fellow at the Claremont Institute as well. To your point, I published American Ingrid this year, the book about Ilhan Omar as the personification of the progressive Islamist nexus that I believe is dominating in the Democrat Party. And I think we've seen it in this election. We see it in the Biden-Sanders unity agenda and the like. And, and to your point, I have a focus on national security and foreign policy, but the, the problem, the challenge that we face today, and the challenge has always been to America, not the external problems, the problems from without, but our strength from within. And what I fear in this election, if it does not go the way that I hope it goes, and I suspect many of your viewers hope it goes as well, is that we will find ourselves in a place where we are back to an agenda of appeasement, submission, political correctness, trumping all else, a lack of law and order, the rule of law, justice, and of course, the free enterprise system that underpins much of our strength as a nation and really the strength of Western civilization. So I really do believe this is a civilizational kind of election, and I hope voters took that to heart today. I think with the intensity we've seen on the Trump side, perhaps they did. We'll just have to see as the night plays out. Well, it's great to have you with us tonight. Uh, I'll let you go now. I think we have a cover of your book. I just want to put it on the screen to show our, our, we don't have it yet. We'll bring it back up next time we see you. The book is called American Ingrate. And why do I talk about that book so much? First of all, I can't get over the title. It perfectly summarizes folks like Ilhan Omar who come and take all of America's blessings and then do nothing but disparage it and undermine it. But more importantly, because I think it describes, Ben, if I may, I think it describes the part of the Democratic Party that has the energy, the momentum, the youth, uh, that is pushing, I mean, Joe Biden looks like a 90-year-old, he's 78, I think, or 70, I forget his age, 75 or something. He looks like he's 90. There it is, American ingrate. Um, Ilhan Omar and the progressive Islamist takeover of the Democratic Party. She may be young and she may be rough, but she and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the others in the squad are the ones driving Joe Biden's policy. I truly believe that. So, Ben, congratulations on that book. We'll check in with you in about 45 minutes or so and come back and, and do work your trap lines, Ben. Check your Twitter sources. Check people. When we talk to you again, let us know if there's any interesting things you're observing out there. Yeah, look forward to it. Good to see you. There's Ben Weingarten of Newsweek magazine, which is outstanding to have a voice like his. Lynn, what's your mood so far? Well, first of all, one thing I noticed, you were just talking about Florida and Georgia as well. The New York Times estimates have both of those states, in the case of Florida, over 90 percent forecasted win for the president. And in Georgia, at last check, over 60 percent. So that would obviously be pretty bullish for the you know, the way that, that I usually try to analyze these elections, and oftentimes the analysis isn't there to do it particularly well, but is what are the kind of pivot counties that might tell us something, serve as proxies for other states, other battleground areas. And in Miami-Dade County, for example, it appears the president has done very well, particularly, uh, and that's a county which is dominated in part by Latino voters. So certainly there could be a trend there. Now, obviously, Florida has its own phenomenon in terms of the makeup of that Latino voter demographic and an anti-socialist bent 
to that demographic as well. So we'll see how that applies going forward in other states. I also took a look at some other interesting counties as well. There were some reports earlier about Cuyahoga County in Ohio, which is dominated by Cleveland, for example, where turnouts down significantly, was down significantly in the county in general, and Cleveland in particular. Now, those numbers have trickled up over time, but it doesn't appear necessarily that they're even going to hit 2016 percentages. So that's something to keep an eye on, because that's a county which was a Hillary Clinton at around two-thirds of the vote last time, obviously crucial for Joe Biden's hopes there. Also, rural Nevada, all the numbers that we've seen coming out in the relevant counties appear to be coming out very strong for the president. Nevada, of course, was a loss last time, and Democrat turnout appears to be underperforming in that state. So also something to look at. Pinellas County in Florida, Republicans are up there. This is a, a county that President Obama won in 2008 and 2012. The president won it in 2016 as well and usually serves as a bellwether. And I say the president up in terms of Republican ID voters turnout, which we assume president will dominate there. Lastly, Dauphin County, Pennsylvania, Trump lost there by 4,000 votes in 2016. It looks like Republican precincts are at least matching their turnout from last time, and Democrat precincts in that county are down. So that would obviously be significant if a county last time that went for Hillary Clinton actually flipped to President Trump this time. So those are some of the bullish signals that I'm seeing, and we'll have to see as more results roll in uh, what it says about this head-to-head -head contest. You know, that's very exciting, and I'm, I'm looking at those Miami numbers, and it's 54% to Biden, 45% to Trump in Miami-Dade, and that is remarkably close for what is such a blue case. I mean, I don't know the stats from last election in front of me, but I, I gotta imagine they were, you know, Trump wasn't within, you know, I mean, 45% in Miami for Trump. That's that Cuban vote, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. And, you know, there's data out there showing that as Cubans get further removed generationally from living under the tyrannical Castro regime, that they tend to start going more blue. And the Cuban population in America, of course, has traditionally been a Republican, a staunch Republican constituency. I think it's very telling if you have second and even third generation Cubans in America, Cuban-Americans, who are starting to go back towards the Republicans, it's an indicator of fear of, again, a socialist-dominated Democrat party. And I think it's a fear with great reason. So uh, absolutely worth keeping an eye on. I would also point out Jeff Rowe, who was the campaign manager for Ted Cruz in 2016, has pointed out a couple of districts that we ought to keep an eye on tonight, and those are Missouri 2 and Oklahoma 5. One of these seats is a Republican seat. The other is a Democrat seat. They're heavily suburban. They're in districts that have traditionally had a Republican tilt. If there is a suburban bloodbath for the president and that ends up trumping gains in terms of turnout in rural areas, in terms of winning a greater percentage of votes among black Americans as well as Latino Americans, those may be sort of telltale count, uh, congressional districts in terms of looking at places that are sort of on a knife's edge and we'll see if the suburban vote is really something that does the president in. So we've talked about some of the bullish signals. Those are some of the signals to look at uh, from a more conservative perspective. Yeah. Well, and that is terrifying. I mean, I'm, I'm pleased that Florida, which was such a battleground in 2000, I mean, that was where it all came down to, and was pretty close last time. It looks like Trump's got that. And I think it's, be even though numerically right now he's not ahead, 
judging by how he's moved up in some of those deep blue counties, I think it's safe to say he's likely going to win them. Um, we'll check in with you again maybe in 45 minutes or so. Keep us posted on those bellwether districts that you mentioned, counties. You've told us some of the hopeful signs, and we do need to know the pessimistic signs. But right now, would you say that Trump is overperforming what the pundits had said? Yeah, I absolutely think that he is outperforming what the what the poll has said. And the question really is, and I think if you look at this from a macro perspective here, you have to adjust these polls for non-representative samples for the pack the fact that some pollsters have a vested interest in I believe trying to demoralize the Republican vote adjusting for the shy Trump voter let's say that's somewhere between 2 and 4%. So the question really is uh, where does that all shake out? Is that enough to cover the margins that we saw in many of these battlegrounds? And when you looked at the real clear average of battleground states this time versus last time, it's pretty close. It's still, you know, another point or two in Biden's direction, a margin relative to Hillary Clinton. So we'll have to see as the night plays out. But these bellwether counties uh, are certainly quite telling. And, you know, we'll see where we go with Georgia and North Carolina and the like. And if the president is able to hold those, then it really does come down to these Rust Belt states, I think. And it'll be a fascinating finish to this evening. And, and we'll see if it's a finish to the race or if we're, the race really picks up over the next three weeks or more. Hmm. Since you were just talking about Minnesota, uh, it, interestingly, Keith Ellison, the attorney general, tweeted out something earlier today around, I believe, five o'clock Eastern time saying, uh, we need more votes. We need you to come out. We need your votes, something to that effect. Now, an attorney general should not be saying that we need votes, in particular, of course, for his party. And what happens if it turns out in Minnesota that it is a dead heat of a race? And law enforcement or, or the elect, election officials are forced to come up to some rulings and the like. I mean, you can see the corrosive nature of an attorney general voicing his opinion. By the way, same thing in Pennsylvania. The secretary of state there tweeted out infamously that if all the votes are counted, Democrats will win in Pennsylvania. And he also tweeted out today that if there are any issues at the polls, that people should reach out to the Pennsylvania Dem voter assistance line. Yeah. Uh, so I, th I think that's a, it's a good representation of where the Democrats are. And we, you know, the left loves to talk about an independent, uh, impartial justice system and then look at how their attorney generals and secretaries of state act. Uh, as for what we're seeing out there, I think Florida and Georgia going the president's way obviously bodes well. He needs to retain these southern states. North Carolina, New York Times forecast was showing it at about 67 percent Biden as of about a half hour ago. And at last check, it was actually at 56 percent Trump. Now, this is with, I believe, less than a percent. It's, it's a forecast number. So this is hypothetical. Uh, what they saw that made them change their minds, I think, is interesting. And we have to be patient because all of the early numbers across all of these states are the early voters. And that obviously trended significantly Democrat in most places. And then of course on election day, Republicans substantially outperform Democrats everywhere. So we have to take the early numbers with a grain of salt, but I think it is interesting that North Carolina shifted, at least in the New York Times forecast. Lastly, with respect to Ohio, it seems a bit as the turnout in the big cities there, and, and maybe this is a trend that we'll see across the country, 
was down in those cities. And then you had President Trump, it seems like, picking up a slightly higher margin than last time. And there have been a lot of reports out there showing that as a general matter, the votes of black Americans come in at lower rates than last time. And Donald Trump is taking a bigger proportion of those votes. Now, the other side of the equation, the other part of the coin is it appears that in the suburbs, Joe Biden might be outperforming Hillary Clinton relative to last time. And if that holds, that offsets what we're seeing in the more urban area. So, you know, again, as I mentioned before, that whole the, the question of the suburbs, which in many ways had already been trending sort of liberal, elite, progressive in terms of their culture, we're seeing that in the votes as well. On the other hand, the trade-off has been that Republicans are winning blue-collar middle American voters under President Trump. And will that be a permanent realignment? We shall see. Th that cultural divide even matters, it feels like, more than the ideological divide at this point. Yeah, you're right. You know, uh, we interviewed a professor from George Mason uh, University, Frank Buckley, who wrote a book called The Republican Workers Party. And at first, that's such a strange phrase. You don't see Republican Workers Party like that's just opposite. But no, I think it's crystal clear that people who work in factories, people with hard hats, people who work outdoors, people who extract things from the ground, chop trees, mine mines, that used to be, I mean, a lot of those are union jobs, some are not union jobs, that used to be the heartland for any damn, but those people have gone to Trump. And part of it's because of his infrastructure plans, part of it is because of his reshoring of factories, fighting China with tariffs, and I think it's also a cultural thing. So it's not just money issues. It's not calling voters chumps, which Biden did. Not calling voters deplorable. Not, I mean, Trump had a few rappers <laughs> endorse him. And it was very funny because some of them are very, very different than your average Republican. I mean, Little Pump, the, the rapper who was there in Miami, he's just, he's very funny. He's a Republican aesthetically. But... The party of the celebrities, the party of Lady Gaga, is not the same party as a, as a steel worker in Indiana. Yeah, the Democrats have become the party of it's and then a what they've tried to create in a dependent class in America. And the Republicans have really become the party, or at least a Donald Trump-led Republican party. And I do think that his gains are going to echo for years to come, and I do think it is going to transform what conservatism means and what the Republican Party stands for. At least it should, otherwise the party won't exist for very long. Uh, he has converted it into a party of union workers, the police, military veterans, those who are common sense, patriotic Americans who have been forgotten and left behind by the political and, I, and have to credit Carlson had a monologue about this the other night, and he basically said that Donald Trump is a big middle finger to the political elite, the political establishment. And so the love of Trump in some ways is proportional to the hatred of an establishment that is forgotten about these forgotten Americans who helped build the country, fight American war, and were our labor force in, in heavy industry for decades. And so, and I think it's a positive shift in the Republican Party. And we'll see if the Democrats can hold that coalition together yeah. for long. Is that really going to be a winning strategy long term? Ben, thank you for that. I want to throw one more thing at you. Uh, you mentioned earlier that one of the, I mean, the New York Times has such large resources, so many reporters, and although their editorial line and their biases are so pronounced, um, the one thing, because they have such resources, they can 
do the, do the kind of calculations county by county, voter turnout. So when, it, when it's no commentary, just like sports scores, you know, there's no commentary. You either scored the goal or you didn't. And I think tonight is that kind of night. All the bluster and BS is done. It's just what's it looking like in Miami-Dade. And so the facts are the facts. Trump's going to win on that basis. One of the, You mentioned earlier one of the things they do is based on those sort of um, entrails, reading the entrails, they give a day of prediction. Now, yesterday, if the, Donald, if the New York Times said Trump has a 10% chance of winning, winning, I'd say that's BS, that's predictive, that's polls. But today, if they say Trump has a 10% chance of winning this county, I know it's based on voter turnout and, and trends. So I actually give some credence to it today because it's not guesswork. It's based on these factors we've been talking about. When you and I last spoke, uh, the New York Times was saying that Joe Biden was quite likely to win North Carolina. Or is that about two hours ago that happened? Right now, the New York Times is saying that Donald Trump has a 71% chance, I don't know how they give it that precision, of winning North Carolina. So over the course of the last two hours, that state looks increasingly red. And I should tell you that two-thirds of the votes are in. I, that gives me a flicker of hope, Ben, a flicker of hope. What do you think? Yeah, look, it makes the path seem much more realistic in terms of retaining those core states that the president had last time and just needing to win one or two of these Rust Belt states. Now, again, of course, it may well be that given how similarly some of these states are comprised of voters in terms of the demographics and, and the ideological inclination, that if you're going to win, let's say, a Pennsylvania, then all of the states are going to fall. And you're going to win Michigan and Wisconsin, and you're going to come really close in Minnesota like last time. But retaining these, these states in the South, I think, is critical for the president to have a chance against what the odds showed themselves to be. And, and again, you know, my running theme is you don't want this to come down and hinge on just because again, the litigation and voter fraud margin is just too strong there. And we'll be counting votes for days of these absentee uh, ballots that maybe weren't even sent in at the proper time where you can't verify the signature, but because of terrible court rulings at the state level and then at the federal level, these ballots will be counted and they'll keep counting them until you have a Joe Biden victory. So yeah, again, we have to look at these states like in North Carolina, that was a bubble sort of state. Democrats have harbored these hopes of winning in a Georgia. Plenty of pollsters had Biden winning in Florida. We'll see where Arizona shakes out as well. And Texas had been talked about as well. And I saw a statistic before we came on showing that in Harris County, which I believe has Houston and several other more democratic leaning uh, cities and, and suburban areas, that the votes are not there for Biden to win Texas. Obviously, if Texas fell, uh, it, would be a, it would be a catastrophe for the Republican Party. Um, the fact that all of these states that the Democrats harbored hopes of winning are all falling obviously bodes pretty well for the president. Let's see where we are in another hour or so when it comes to Ohio and Pennsylvania as more results trickle in. And again, as we get past the early vote count, which is going to make it look like a Dem victory in many of these states. But let's focus on those three states, um, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. At about, I don't know the exact time, there was an announcement in a variety of Democrat-controlled battleground states 
that they were simply going to stop counting. Just, just stop. That the, why? That's not how this works. And everyone went to bed. But then they started a little bit later. Why did they stop? Why did they start? And I want to show you a tweet that is heavily, heavily censored. And I'll explain how it's censored. I'll show it's censored. Um, state of the race in Wisconsin. So you can see uh, on the left-hand side, there's a... On the bottom axis, it's the time and, and date and time. So uh, just before, does that say 5 a.m.? I can't quite see that. 6 a.m. Do you see the red line? When they started counting, the red line was clearly beating the blue line until about 5 a.m. And then the blue line just happens to jump exactly enough to beat the red line. <laughs> uh, really. But there's another tweet. It's, can you go to, let's do this together. Go to Donald Trump. So that just happened in the middle of the night. Um, every single vote that was found in a 100,000 plus vote tranche, every single one of them was for Biden. What's the statistical chance of that? I put it to you at zero. Now look at this. Work with me here. President of the United States has a question. What is this all about? But you can't see. Twitter has blocked it. They say some or all of the content shared in this tweet is disputed and might be misleading about an election or other civic process. Well, everything is disputed. That's what an election is. Both sides dispute each other and the people decide. So you can't read it. They blocked it. Now you can click view, and you still can't see it though, can you? You just click view and you can't see it. Okay, click view again. Well, it's a tweet by Matt Walsh, who says, this is reason enough to go to court. No honest person can look at this and say, it's normal and unconcerning. Okay, before we click on it anymore, Let's just look at those words. This is reason enough to go to court. How is that misleading or false or disinformation? It's an opinion. This is reason to go to court. No honest person can look at this and say it's normal and unconcerning. Okay, so where's the fraud? It's, it's all opinions, and it's, it's just saying, come on, guys, we've got to go to court. How is that? So you've had to click three times now to read it. Click on it one more, click on the Matt Walsh thing. And now, what he's linked to has been blocked, and you can't see how many times, and you'll notice that something's missing now. How many times has this Matt Walsh tweet been liked, favorited, shared, quoted? They've removed that information. Has this been seen a hundred times? A hundred thousand? A million? Why can't we know that? Is it so this doesn't trend or something? This is reason enough to go to court. No, no, how many times have you clicked now, Justin? Four times, I think? Four times. And we still don't know what the president was talking about. He was talking about something that Matt Walsh was talking about. We have now clicked four times and we still don't know what they're talking about. 
Do you know what they're talking about? Okay, click it for the fifth time. Okay, five clicks. An update gives Biden 100% of new votes, 128,000. So now can you click on that tweet by Mac Macowick? And you'll notice, again, another warning, some or all of the content shared in this is disputed and might be misleading. So again, you don't know how many times it's being viewed. You don't have any of those stats on it. So you've, is that five or six clicks now? That was the sixth click. Now click on the image itself so we can make it a little bit larger. And then can you zoom in even more? Is it possible to zoom in on the image or not really? Um, so what does he mean? Well, we were just, we showed another version of the graph a moment ago, but I was, I was watching attentively all night. Yeah, and can you even pump it up just a tiny bit? Thank you. So um, on the left, you see that Trump, do you see the, the Trump vote there? This is in Michigan. So now we're talking about Michigan, not Wisconsin. Michigan, um, the Trump votes, I'm just going to squint a little bit here, were 2.2 million, and the Biden votes were 1.99. Thank you very much. So 2.2 million, I'm just going to jot this down so I don't forget. I'm going to be very precise. 2,200,902. All right? And the Biden votes is 1,992,356. As you can see, that's a fairly significant difference. That's a 5% difference. And not, as you can see in the bottom right of that little box, 91% or 90.9%. Uh, the votes are in. Okay, next slide. So you'll see that now 93.8% of the votes are in. And what's that Trump number? It is exactly what it was in the other slide. 2,200,902. Go to the left again just to show people. 2,200,902. Go, go back to the right again. 2,200,902. But now compare Biden numbers. On the left, 1,992,356. And on the right, ta-da! 2,130,695. So not a single new vote found for Donald Trump, but what was it, 138,000? I could do the math. Uh, 130, approximately 138,000 new votes found for Biden. Just poof, just happened. Okay, thanks. So close up this, but don't close the whole thing. So go back, so to speak. So show me the, that last tweet and let's work our way backwards. So that's what Matt Makowiak shows. But again, you've got the warning there. You've um, stripped of information how many people are liking sharing it. And then you see the top that arrow to the left? Yeah, click it. So now you're going to you scroll up a little bit. You're at Matt Walsh's tweet here. Just scroll up a little so we can see. Yeah. And then you've got Donald Trump. What is this all about? So we had to click, I think, six times 
to get to the information. How many people are going to click six times to get to the information? But let me read again the warning. Some or all of the content shared in this tweet is disputed and might be misleading about an election or other civic process. But really, it was only uh, two snapshots of reported numbers from Michigan, a Democrat-controlled state. So is it disputed in what way? Did the state not issue these numbers? If so, I'd like to know. Or might be misleading. What's misleading? Um, the numbers are the numbers. There's not a lot of fudging there. It's, it's like you know, scoring a sports game. Either you have the goal or the basket or whatever the sport is. Either, like the thing about sports is there's no BS in it, right? Either those votes were there or they're not. There's not, I mean, I don't care about your interpretation. Were those, are those the numbers that really were reported by the state of Michigan or not? If they are the numbers that were reported by the state of Michigan, and then that fellow just published them and said, look at this, there is nothing misleading about them. There is nothing disputable about them if these numbers were in fact issued by the state of Michigan. So Donald Trump, who spent a lot of time and money in Michigan, who won Michigan last time, simply has a five-word question. What is this all about? And Trump says, that's disputed. Click it. And you need to click six times before you get to the facts. And like I say, as of right now, um, Trump is trailing in Michigan. Trump is trailing in Wisconsin. Trump is ahead in Pennsylvania, but they've already announced that they have found, quote, millions of new votes, millions, which is quite something um, given the size of um, Pennsylvania. Um, Pennsylvania 2016 vote results. I'm going to see what they were in 2016. In 2016, mm, the grand total of votes in Pennsylvania was 6 million. So, um, How many uh, votes do they have right now? Um, it's, it's about five and a half million, is that right? So there could be another million votes, sure. There could be another two million votes, millions of votes. Um, I'm skeptical, though, because the attorney general of that state announced in advance before the polls had closed that the Democrats would win. He didn't say could win or should win or are on track to win or he thinks they'll win. He said they would win. How, how did he know? He said if all the votes are counted, the Democrats will win. How did he know that? Why would he say that? And he said that in his capacity as uh, a senior officer in the government of um, Pennsylvania. I think that the vote is being stolen. And I think that the kind of people who would pack the court, as they threatened to do, who would challenge the very concept of the Electoral College, as they do constantly, who would change the rules in the Senate to, um, under Obama for their own advantage. I think those kind of people would literally do anything to win. The kind of people who would accuse Brett Kavanaugh of being a 
serial rapists, the gang rapists in college, the kind of people who would make that up, the kind of people who, I mean, this is Jussie Smollett territory. They, these people will do anything and say anything. They'll do anything and say anything to try and knock out a Supreme Court judge, Brett Kavanaugh. Do you doubt they wouldn't do as much or more to knock out a president? They would do anything. It's Anna Slots for Rebel News, and I just arrived to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm continuing to cover the protests and disruptions caused by the election fallout, or should I say the waiting fallout, considering no election has actually occurred yet. Everything is still up in the air, and that is definitely contributing to an increase in tensions across the country. Now, the reason why I'm in my hotel room instead of outside is that it is extremely loud out there. There are police and media helicopters swarming around the convention center, which is right outside my accommodation. And police sirens are going off every few minutes. It's so loud, you can barely hear me. You can barely hear yourself think. Before I hit the streets to bring you whatever news I can, I thought I would start by recapping last night's coverage in New York City. It was a crazy and very long night. The protest started around 5 p.m. in Christopher Park. And when I arrived, I was immediately shocked by the amount of police officers that were piled into every single corner, every single intersection of the borough. There were hundreds. They were on bikes, in trucks, on foot. I had never seen so many police in my life. And of course, I was a little bit nervous because the last time I had an encounter with the NYPD while covering protests in New York City, I spent a few nights in jail. <laughs> but fortunately, I didn't get arrested last night. What I did was witness an incredible show of power from the NYPD while they attempted to stop the protest from turning into a riot. Immediately, the protest march was flanked on both sides by hundreds of NYPD. This is a technique called kettling, where police follow protesters and effectively seal them in to control the crowd and make arrests easier. The technique worked because around 8 p.m., the protest had become fragmented and the remaining protesters ended up in Union Square. At first, I thought things were going pretty well. You know, it had ended. No businesses had been destroyed. Nothing had been looted. Uh, no one had gotten hurt. But just as I was about to call a cab home, things geared right back up. Protesters continued to fill the streets and obstruct city buses. So it was then that the NYPD began standing off with the protesters, filling the opposing side of the street and demanding the crowd disperse. Protesters began riling up, standing in front of cars and even throwing things at the police officers. At one point, the police charged the square, hundreds of them descending on the remaining protesters and firing pepper spray. At one point, a protester accused an NYPD officer of killing a black man that night, though I could find no evidence that that had happened. And that immediately geared the protesters right back up. Hey, 
comes another one behind! <laughs> it is getting really tense. it was a wild night. I hope you enjoyed the coverage. And if you did, you can go to rebel2020.com to contribute towards the travel costs of sending me down here and bringing you whatever I can. Today I'm in Philadelphia and I'm gonna go hit the streets and see what I can see for you guys. For Rebel News, I'm Anna Slaps. I recall that Leslin Lewis, who had a very strong uh, race for the leadership of the Canadian Conservative Party, an accomplished black woman, an immigrant, a lawyer, uh, very thoughtful, had a very strong showing, and in the end, the CBC gave her precisely one minute and 45 seconds of airtime because a strong, thoughtful, black woman immigrant lawyer, well, that just broke the narrative. At the same time, and this was before Kamala Harris was chosen as Biden's vice presidential pick, the CBC gave 20 times as much coverage to Kamala Harris, a foreign political candidate who at that point in time had merely succeeded in losing the Democratic presidential nomination. And so it is in the race uh, recently in the United States Congress. Of course, there was the mighty presidential election that's still being counted. But across America, there were a new bumper crop of Republican women, including young women and minority women, success stories, immigrant women from Vietnam, people of Cuban descent. But of course, the attention was focused on the left-wing Democrat squad, as they call us, joining us now via Skype from the West Coast is our friend Joel Pollack, senior editor-at-large at Breitbart.com. Joel, um, the idea of young, powerful, high-energy women being a Republican force, uh, that just confounds the left too much, so they just pretend it doesn't exist, am I right? <laughs> well, first of all, let me explain my outfit. I'm about to go boxing, take out my frustrations from the week. So <laughs> this is my this is my sporting hobby. Uh, I, I go and uh, punch some leather a few times a week. But the women in the Republican Party know how to be fighters. And I think one of the reasons that the Republican Party is attracting so many talented women and minorities is because Americans like a challenge. And when you tell Americans that the Democratic Party is going to set aside certain positions, they're going to use identity politics uh, here in California, they're going to reserve corporate board seats for people who are historically disadvantaged. That doesn't really motivate people to do better, to do more, to break the mold. But the Republicans say, we're not going to do any of that. We're just going to judge you as you are. But we're open to anybody who has the talent to compete. That ironically produces the kind of freshman class that Republicans are going to arrive in Washington with in January. The 10 seats that Republicans have won so far in the House elections of 2020 are 100% women and minority candidates. And that 100% statistic is going to stick around because there is a Korean American woman who's about to win her race in Orange County, California. She's ahead by several thousand votes. It's probably going to be called in the next few days if it hasn't been this morning already. So Republicans are attracting talented, 
women, talented minorities who want to make their mark on American politics and don't want to be reduced to their identity, don't want to be handed a set of talking points by a Democratic Party that essentially treats them as if they are functionaries carrying out a kind of representative role, but not really seen as future leaders. It's interesting that Kamala Harris, who is presumably our vice president-elect, almost never spoke to reporters once during the entire general election campaign. From the time she was nominated in mid-August to election day, I think she held maybe one or two press briefings. They were all very brief, something like 10 minutes or less. And they were all in the presence of Joe Biden. She never really sat down with the press for spontaneous, extemporaneous questions. So that's the role that the Democratic Party reserves for women and minorities. You basically follow the script and you offer different versions of the accusation that the Republicans are racist and greedy and so forth. Whereas Republicans don't put any labels on people. They don't hand a script to people. The people who are running in these races, they launch their own campaigns. They've got to raise their own money. If they do very well, they get some interest from national Republican Party organizations and donors. But these are all startup candidates. And it's incredible that they've come so far and done so well. But it tells you also that Donald Trump, who may be on his way out as president, has diversified the Republican Party by sheer force of example and against a media and an opposition that have constantly referred to him as Adolf Hitler, that have referred to his supporters as neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and so forth. Christian Amanpour was on CNN yesterday talking about how the Trump presidency reminded her of the Nazi regime in 1938 on Kristallnacht. Now, that's a form of Holocaust denial when you reduce the unique suffering of the Holocaust to some kind of ordinary political event. That is kind of Holocaust denial is recognized as such by scholars in the field. But CNN gets away with it because everything is permissible with regard to Trump. And yet Trump has attracted this outstanding crop of female and minority candidates for the House of Representatives. He has, as someone said, longer coattails in defeat than Joe Biden had in victory. You've reached the offices of Dominion Voting Systems. Please leave a message and we will get back to you. Hi there, would you be able to tell us why Dominion Voting gave so much money to Hillary Clinton? Would you be able to explain that to me? We know that Dominion Voting is Unit 360, uh, and right next to them at 370 is Tides. And on this, on this here, this board, it's been removed, and we're wondering why that was removed. What that sort was of removed at the request of the tenants? So that was removed at the request of the tenants. Why do you think they hired a police officer to come sort of scout around their building? Can I say anything, sir? Was it Dominion Voting or was it Tides that hired you? I'm not going to answer you, sir. It's a customer's priority. Kian Bexley for Rebel News, standing in Toronto outside of the headquarters of a business you've probably heard of, Dominion Voting Systems. Donald Trump has been tweeting about this company pretty much nonstop over the past few days after allegations of voter fraud arose, specifically coming out of Michigan. About 3,000 ballots were switched from Donald Trump to Joe Biden, leading to a 6,000 vote swing in one Michigan county. Now, Dominion Voting Systems has uh, their hands over elections in tons of counties in the United States. They manage the elections in all of Georgia's 140-something counties, and they run elections also in Canada with the Conservative Party of Canada and also in New Brunswick. And it seems like, it's hard to keep track of actually, how many times allegations of voter fraud follow 
whenever they get involved in an election. It's a huge problem, but today we're here for a different reason. We've learned that they share not just an office building, but they share an office floor with Tides Canada. Now, Tides Canada is interested in meddling in politics within Canada and the United States. They will do whatever they can to stop any sort of resource development, even if it means getting involved in politics. It's a huge problem here in Canada and clearly in the United States. We're really interested to know why they just happen to have very expensive office space here in Chinatown in Toronto, shared with Dominion Voting Systems, the company that just happens to have an ungodly amount of control over the American presidential elections. We're gonna go in there and ask a few questions and see why they're trying to hide the fact that they actually share an office floor because we've poked our head in and we've seen that they've actually removed the placards that show exactly where their office is headquartered. Remove at the request of the tenant. So that was removed at the request of the tenants. Now, I wonder why they would do that. It seems almost like an admission that something mm, a little bit distasteful is going on. But we don't know. We're going to go ask. We're going to see if we can get an interview and speak with folks uh, at Dominion Voting as they go into work this morning. Let's see what we can find. Hi there. Would you be able to tell us why Dominion Voting gave so much money to Hillary Clinton? Would you be able to explain that to me? She did have a Dominion voting tag there. Very luckily, we were invited in by a friendly individual who works in this building, not for tides and not for Dominion voting, but he wanted us to be in where it's warm while we asked folks coming into work on this early Toronto morning what Dominion voting was doing when they donated almost $50,000 to Hillary Clinton. Now, I didn't make that up. The document is right here. It's almost too crazy to believe that an organization that we trust to be impartial that controls the integrity of the ballots in dozens of jurisdictions. From New Brunswick to New York, Dominion Voting has their hands on ballots across the world. And we are supposed to trust them that they're handling those with integrity. Why did they decide that Hillary Clinton was deserving of so much cash? So you can see that there is indeed a Unit 360. You can see it right here. Uh, but for some reason on their front display, they've removed Unit 360 uh, and 370. So that's Tides and Dominion Voting. That's somebody here with, from, that's with you from yeah. Dominion Voting, the campaign. Could you tell us one thing though? Um, there's, we, we know that Dominion Voting is Unit 360 uh, and right next to them at 370 is Tides. And on this, on this here, this board, it's been removed, and we're wondering why that was removed. What that sort of- That was removed at the request of the tenants, so- That was removed at the request of the why tenants. Why are they afraid to know that they're sharing office? Please leave. Why do you think they're afraid Please to know? Leave. Yeah, yeah, certainly yeah. we will. We're just wondering why Please they're, we're just wondering why they don't want people to know that are they're sharing office space. We're, just, we're, we're curious to know, and lot, like millions of people are interested to know why they're hiding that they're sharing I office no space. That's, I'm, just a, I'm just a tenant, I mean, I'm just a building manager. Right? Certainly. You're not supposed to be in your recording. Secondly, you're on. You're not wearing your mask, so. Wasn't wearing my mask, so we're uh, getting kicked out here. Police is here. That was fast. That was really fast. 
Now, as I mentioned before, Tides Canada is directly funded by George Soros, and this is very clear evidence that George Soros' company and Dominion Voting have worked together to cover up the fact that they work in such close proximity, not just in the same office building, but on the very same office floor. Now, what I need an answer to now, and what millions of Americans need an answer to, is how much access these extreme radicals at Tides Canada, funded by George Soros, how much access they have to the documents and information held within Dominion Voting Systems offices here in Toronto, Canada. Where are their servers located? Where is the extremely sensitive data that was being collected while ballots were being tabulated during the American general election? Where was all that stored? Could it be compromised by people working in offices on the very same floor of the very same building here in Toronto? We don't know because Dominion Voting Systems is being very secretive about this. And if history is anything to judge them by, they aren't trustworthy. Hey there, how are you? Go ahead. Would you, would you be able to answer a quick question? Did, uh, did Dominion Voting hire you? I'm not literally discussed that. Why do you think they hired a police officer to come sort of scout around their building? I'm not going to say anything, sir. Was it Dominion Voting or was it Tides that hired you? I'm not going to answer you, sir. It's a customer's priority. It's a customer. So you, you, you're not here on duty. You're here because someone hired you. I'm not going to answer you, sir. Well, you, you said customer. Who's the customer? I don't have to answer any questions. Look, maybe this is something that, like, I'm from Calgary, so I don't. we don't usually rent out our police officers. I'm wondering why... Well, maybe we do. I don't know. This is something new to me. I'm curious to know why, like, a, a, a business has hired a police officer. Well, you can contact our corporate affairs department. They can give you the rundown on that. So we've been here pretty much all day, uh, and we got one interaction with someone who actually works for Dominion Voting, and they sort of scurried inside, and I'm not sure how they got away from us when they came out, because uh, the sun is starting to set here now. And we still haven't gotten any answers. They seem very scared. They don't want to open up to the media to explain what's going on with whether it's, you know, voter fraud or why they share an office with an eco-radical organization. I found it interesting, though, that when we were actually in there waiting where it was a little bit warm, the person said that this is an office building catered towards businesses that support sustainability. That's what she said. You can hear it right here. This, uh green wall is kind of interesting. Are those real plants? Yeah, this is uh, a famous green wall. Huh. So it attracts a lot of people. Oh, yeah? It's all, most of these companies are all about sustainability. So most of the... Matches. I, sorry, I didn't hear you. Oh, sorry. Most of these companies are about sustainability. Gotcha. So it matches that sort of theme of being sustainable. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It is absolutely real. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's not what I expect from a business that is controlling and has a lot of behind-the-scenes power in the United States presidential election. That's not what I expect for an organization that controls Canadian elections. Tides Canada, who shares an office floor, now we know for sure with Dominion Voting Canada, has tried to influence Canadian elections many, many times. In fact, they give George Soros' money to even smaller organizations, so it's harder to trace it. There's been a ton of research done on this, and just somehow... This extreme organization happens to share an office floor with the organization who really had control over who becomes the next president of the United States and has control over many other elections that you might not even be aware of. 
this company, which has an ungodly amount of power. Some might even say they might control who sits in the White House at the Resolute Desk. Well, their slogan is accurate, reliable, and transparent. Today, we've proven they're anything but those three things. They're not accurate, they're not reliable, and they're opaque as hell, shady at best. For Rebel News, outside of Dominion Voting Systems headquarters in Toronto, Canada, I'm Kian Bexty. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for watching. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, good night. Keep fighting for freedom.